Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Cristiana Figueres. I'm Paul Dickinson. Tom is still away this week, so oh. we are delighted to be joined by another surprise co-host. Ah. Hi, I'm Tara Shine. Yay! <laughs> this week, we talk about climate change litigation, and we speak to James Thornton, CEO of Client Earth. We will also enjoy a musical performance from Mystery Jets. Thanks for being here. So, Tara, how wonderful to have you on as our co-host today. Uh, Tara, you've been a good friend and a warrior in the battle of uh, many negotiation topics throughout many, many years. I'm almost going to say for, I, I don't even want to put a number. Can you put a number on that? Oh, well, it's over 20 years in this world, Christiana. Yeah, and I, think I my was going to say 20 years. Exactly. <laughs> I, I thought 20 old. years. And then I thought maybe that's an exaggeration, but it is 20 years. Amazing. But really, no, I'm still young because my first cop uh, was in 2003 in Milan. And uh, yeah, so I don't go right back to the very beginning. Like uh, I think you might. Sadly, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? What year was the? What was your first cop, Christiana? I've never asked you that. Well, actually, I started before the cops, before Cop One. <laughs> what? Yes, there were several meetings before Cop One, and I started then. Anyway, we don't have to dig so deeply into uh, ancient history here. Uh, Tara, it is so wonderful to have you on, especially because. Um, you have been one of the true thinkers and and worker bees, not just thinking, but really working uh, on the intersection of climate change and human rights, which is the topic that we would like to discuss today. However, Tara, before we go into that very serious topic, I actually wanted to invite you to say a little bit about your book, which already has a fantastic title, right? How to Save Our Planet, comma, One Object at a Time. And it's such a fun book because it is, yes, How to Save Our Planet, but what you do brilliantly is you go through everyday objects, tasks, and habits that we have either at home or at office, and you just lead us through how we can reduce our emissions. So it's, um, I, I very much recommend the book. It's just fun and easy to read and easy to follow, more importantly. But I would love you to tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea um, and where are you now? I know that you've already launched it. You were so brave and launched it during COVID. How did you come up with the idea of the book and where is it now? Thanks. Yeah. And thanks for having me. I'm so pleased and excited. It's so exciting to go from being on the listening side of this to being on the talking <laughs> side of it. So yeah, it's a real honor, a real honor. Um, and I love the energy that you bring to this subject that um, has us all so, uh, so excited and energized so often. So The honor yeah, is I, ours, Tara. We're planning to go around every single listener over time and get them on. But thank you so much for being that. I, I'm going to listen myself to the podcast sometime, which I've never done. So we've got all trading places. That's what we're doing. Very good. Yeah. So after, you know, many, many years, as you're saying, Christiane, almost 20 years working at the international level on climate change and um, very much top down where we make, you know, amazing progress and um, we, we get secure, amazing agreements. But it takes a very long time then to trickle down into, you know, normal people's everyday right. lives. And so 
I always had this problem in that nobody ever understood what I did for a job. And um, <laughs> just never. And uh, what they wanted when they did talk to them about climate change was they just wanted to know, well, what can I do? Yeah, mm-hmm. tell me what I can do, Tara. I don't care what the global emissions picture is. Tell me what I can do. And so a few years ago, when I was finishing up working with the Mary Robinson Foundation Climate Justice, I said, right, this could be the moment to um, see, could I write a book for everyday people about everyday things? Because I really want to democratise our conversation on climate change and bring it to more people. I, I want people to stop thinking you have to be perfect to be green or that you have to be green to be green. You could be purple, orange, blue. Like, let's move away from the colour distinction. Um, and so I thought, well, if I write a book through the lens of the most everyday objects that are in our house, our office, our garden shed, the bottom of your gym bag. Give give us a couple of examples, Tara, so we know. So I listen, it, this talks about everything from saucepans to tins of paint, from yoga mats to glitter. The mm-hmm. entire gamut of everyday things. There's almost a hundred objects in there. And what I've done is I've done a load of really boring research and read a load of technical papers to tell you what the environmental impact of all of those things are. Mm-hmm. And then I've switched that part of my head off and I've switched on my practical head and I give you a list of suggestions of things you can actually do in your own life that will make a difference. Small things, if you need a small start bigger things if you're ready for a bigger start. Um, And the whole idea is just try something. Try one, try two things. If you like it, try another. Tell people though. Grow the conversation. Just get started and grow the conversation. And, you know, for me, I, I absolutely know that we need systemic change. I am committed to systemic change, but I just don't see how we can get there without the conversation on climate belonging to more people. So hey, hey, at the moment, it belongs exactly. to, men, to too few of us. So this book is an attempt to make the climate conversation and the whole green conversation belong to more people so that they feel part of it and they feel empowered and they're not scared by a big global problem, but rather say, well, look, there is stuff I can do. And that will enable them then in time to vote differently and to get behind systemic change. The other thing that's important about the book is in the title. And you got it wrong, Christiana, but I will forgive you because you wrote me an awesome, awesome foreword. Go for it. Now, Correct me. It's how to save your planet, one your object planet. at a time. Even better. Thank and you, your, Yeah, the your planet is because this is all about personalizing it. None of us can like take on saving the whole planet. Yeah, not even you. Uh, not even me. So, But what we can do is we can make a difference in our realm of influence. Mm. And so this is about focusing on you and your little planet and what you have control over and how you can then be part of making change for greater good. Um, Yeah, and it was an awful time to launch a book in the middle of a pandemic, but people were really kind and got involved and we did all kinds of online things. And um, yeah, people found actually that that did get the book at that time, that it was really relevant to them because they were, these were all things they could do even while stuck at home um, and showed them that even while they felt quite powerless in the face of a global pandemic, there were actually things of a planetary scale that they could start to do from their own kitchen. Well, I I think it's a lovely book. I saw you talking about Pete and uh, I think it's a fun book. Uh, I'm glad to know that I'm not the only person who has glitter as an everyday part of my life uh, and, and other people do. And you know, that's I actually, you know, paying attention to ourselves and how we live and, and how we spend our money and how we buy is actually at the very heart of empowering yourself uh, to not feel like you're some kind of victim of this, but you're the driver of your own little world. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's just my whole theory. And in my in my business, Change by Degrees, we t- apply the same theory to working with businesses, including like small and medium sized enterprises that haven't yet really got their head around sustainability. The SDGs are Paris. And we help them as well to kind of go this one step at a time. Um, it won't be perfect, but it will be good and it will be better than what you were doing last year. Right. Um, and, and so that's really exciting, helping them step by step along the way, too. Yeah. Constant improvement. And just with one more little thought, sorry, is, is, is that um, actually in a certain sense, you're looking at this about how people spend their money, but it's actually a great guide uh, for people who have businesses to see how mm. they can change what they produce, what they sell, the goods and services. So it's for both sides. Sorry, Christiana. Good. No, um, Tara, thank you for correcting me because honestly, I think Save Your Planet is so much better of a title. And um, titles are really important, as Tom and I know. Mm. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I can imagine that you spent a lot of time thinking about that. In any event, we very much recommend your um, buying, reading, and practicing the book, mm. How to Save Your Planet One Object at a Time. So now, however, we do have to move over to the larger topic that we would like to devote this episode to, which is the intersection of climate change and human rights, uh, using litigation as a tool, of which there is actually already quite a few years of experience. Because... Would you believe it that climate change litigation actually started in the United States in the late 1980s, early 1990s? The number of litigation cases has grown to a point where litigation is considered uh, by many as either a governance mechanism or a, I would say, a potential governance mechanism because we will discuss what the current weaknesses are. But the majority of the litigation cases have come, not surprisingly, over the last 10 years, and in fact, mostly over the last two years. I think the Paris Agreement uh, was one of the factors that opened the floodgates of litigation. And also, not surprisingly, the majority of the cases are still being filed in the United States. We have something between 1,200 and 1,300 cases in the United States alone, and then more than 300 cases in 36 other countries. So, you know, very, very skewed toward the United States, unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly. Um, And uh, a very interesting, I would say, array of cases because they're being brought against oil majors, and we can discuss that. They're being brought against governments, uh, a very successful case there that we will discuss. And they're being brought by sometimes even attorney generals, as in the United States, and recently by young people, which I think is so exciting that this whole youth movement lately has not just taken to the streets, but they've actually moved up into um, the legal framework and are now bringing cases to protect their own uh, their own future. So a very exciting, and I would say still, despite the fact that it started 20 years ago, I would say still a very incipient area, very incipient. I thought maybe we could start, Tara and Paul, by discussing a little bit 
the lawsuits that have been brought against the carbon majors, the oil and gas companies, because at least sequentially, those were the first lawsuits that came about. Um, I believe the first very famous one was 2015, where the New York Attorney General issued a subpoena against Exxon. And after that, there have been many cases, most of them not one, by the way. But we have nine cities and counties all the way from New York to San Francisco that have sued major fossil fuel companies seeking compensation. So, Tara, I would love to know from you, where do you see the impact of these lawsuits against the companies? Yeah, no, so I think this is all really interesting. So you can, a company can be... Uh, litigated against for different misdemeanors. So I think in the past it was largely things like um, inadequate environmental um, impact assessment uh, of projects, for example, was a common thing, or projects being built without adequate attention to the rights of people who lived in the local area. Um, But whether it's that or interestingly now, I think uh, cases taken against companies for greenwashing, which is, I think, you know, really powerful. I think the the strength of them, whether they win or lose, is the fact that companies know that they can no longer get away with the Mm. practices of the past. And in some cases, it's showing them that, uh, A, they need to practice due diligence, which is like making sure you have your environmental impact assessments, et cetera, in place. Um, But secondly, that due diligence isn't enough, that you have to go further than that. So you can't just be doing due due diligence and saying that you're great and using that at the basis for a little bit of greenwashing um, in terms of your advertising or your branding story, that you actually have to go beyond that. People want you to be authentic and legitimate in your efforts to be a sustainable, clean, green company. Um, And I think what these uh, lawsuits show is they show... Um, the interest of stakeholders, shareholders, customers and clients to what companies are doing. And so I think they inevitably force companies to pull up their socks and work a bit harder at doing the right thing. And as I say, doing more than not doing harm, actually looking at how are they going to do the right thing? How can they um, invest, act, produce and manufacture for the greater good? And I think that's really exciting. Mm. I mean, if I can just sort of chip in, something something is changing in that sort of underlying structure of the way the world views climate change. And um, there are so many different lawsuits, but one that I pay particular attention to is from uh, the city of San Francisco and other cities suing major oil companies in the US um, over um, sea level rise and the cost of building seawalls around San Francisco. I mean, the city could face a $2 billion seawall cost. Actually, putting one around at the airport could cost considerably more than $5 billion. And uh, it's actually as recently as the 28th of May uh, that recently the case is back on that uh, the appeal court has said, yes, they will will look at that case. And, um, you know, when you've got such significant entities as the very city of San Francisco and others uh, combining in powerful lawsuits seeking real reparations for the real cost of building seawalls now, you know that it's getting close to happening and it's getting close to changing the way we think about climate change completely. Mm. Absolutely. And I think looking at that, looking at the cost of climate impacts, that's a, that's a change. So we're not just even... Um, 
using the law to say enough isn't being done to reduce emissions and you're not keeping us safe through that, but also these impacts are going to have costs. And that conversation in the past lived very much as a sort of developed versus developing world conversation. We always assumed it would be developing countries suing other countries mm. for the fact that they were being impacted by climate change. And that like, gave a lot of fear around kind of big compensation claims. But now, in that case in San Francisco, it's actually from within a country, in its own country and in a developed country, where climate impacts are actually right now costly enough that people are saying, right, we're going to have to sue because these costs are out of control. It's actually an amazing lawsuit if you read it. Uh, the, 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 the story of misinformation spread by the oil and gas companies is incredible. Christiana? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, that misinformation, I think that's sort of where this started. And I'm so interested in seeing where it's going. But I think where it started originally was the defrauding of shareholders that were uh, given false information that the public was given false information about the impacts of climate change, et cetera. I mean, what 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 Tara calls greenwashing, but 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 I think Tara, this is this goes beyond our mm. normal greenwashing, right? This is uh, very deliberate misinformation to both shareholders and to the public in general, having the information in hand of what these emissions were doing to uh, to the planet, and yet completely denying that they had that information and uh, sort of, you know, sticking that information way down at the bottom of the drawer so that nobody had access to that. Is, isn't that sort of the, the um, genesis of all of this litigation? I think so. That's certainly been at the heart of the Exxon case. And that's been really shocking, I think, to see the extent to which the truth um, was hidden. And for me, it it really helps us to focus on what is the power of the rule of law. Um, mm-hmm. So to test that, I think, is fascinating. And um, when I started to work with uh, Mary Robinson, it was a great meeting of minds between me as an environmental scientist and her as a human rights lawyer and a, and a lawyer with this strong law background. Um, and for me, that was my chance to actually fundamentally understand the power of the rule of law. And that when we have these laws in place, um, and then we use them when we need to from a from a, a legal justice perspective, how powerful that that is. And I think it's something that's overlooked by a lot of us in the environmental field. We, we you know, we, we work away on our little world around policies and perhaps narrow laws, environmental laws. But there are so many other laws that we can call on um, to hold people to account, hold companies, hold governments to account. And so mm. I, I have just had this awakening about the power of the of the rule of law and how it, whether that law sits in human rights or environment or in labor law or investor law, it is all there for us to call on, to hold those who seek to do wrong, who seek to cause injustice to account. Um, And that way, environmentalists working with clever lawyers can really do amazing things Mm -hmm. um, to scale up the ambition, but also to, to to hold people to account and to ensure that we're not told any more lies. Let's let's delve in a little bit into one of those bodies of law, um, Tara, that are the human rights, because the current commissioner, uh, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, she has underlined the relationship between climate change and human rights. But 
Am I correct in remembering that it actually was Mary Robinson with whom you, Tara, worked so closely for so many years when she was UN High Commissioner of Human Rights way back in 1997? I believe she was the first to recognize and um, and and really focus on the relationship between climate change and uh, and human rights, and I believe her position on that opened up a huge space of, uh, first of understanding that these two things belong together, but also the space for where we are now, which is that most litigation on climate change is actually moving toward human rights and using human rights laws as the basis for the litigation cases. Yeah, so you're dead right. Mary has been, you know, a fantastic leader in creating a bridge between uh, climate change and human rights. She actually started to do it after she was um, High Commissioner for Human Rights. She actually calls herself to account and says she didn't do enough of it while she held that role because it just wasn't understood well enough at that time. Um, uh, But... It was actually after that and when she was working on the ground in in, in places like in Africa where she saw the impact of climate change and human rights that she said, my goodness, this is the the biggest human rights issue of our time, climate Mm. change. Wow, I didn't think about this. And that led her, and then she was shocked when she found that the climate change people never spoke to the human rights people. So a lot of the work that we did in the Mary Robinson Foundation for Climate Justice was to bring the human rights and climate change communities together to talk to each other. When we did that, oh my goodness, hey presto, they had so much that they needed to talk about, so much in common, so many ways they could help each other. And so I think one of the reasons that we've seen progress in human rights law being used for to further climate change objectives is because now these two communities have actually found each other. So it's one of these all-time examples of where we just sometimes sit in our silos and those who can help us most, we haven't found them yet. So, Mm. you know, a real call on us all to always talk to someone with a different discipline to yours. And I would say to the people working, uh, people listening to this podcast, that if you care about the environment, learn how to use the law um, to find out um, how it can help you. And, and so many different bodies of law that are at our disposal. Exactly. From human rights law to investor and shareholder law, it, the, you know, straight up environmental law. Um, all of these things apply. We can use them all. And it's just about being clever. And as I think people committed to the environment and climate action, being humble enough for, to ask for help. And what lawyers always said to me when I was working as a climate change was negotiator was, you don't have to work out the legal how to. Tell me what you want to do and I will tell you what the legal construct is. <laughs> and so in that way too, tell the lawyer what you're trying to do, what your objective is, what your goal is, and then use them to help you figure out the right way to get there using the law. Mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, the law has been created over hundreds, thousands of years to protect us, to protect people. Mm. Um, you know, I, I do genuinely believe that uh, the threat represented by climate change is a threat to national security. And, mm. um, you know, there's long histories of all sorts of people uh, concerned about national security. I was looking the other day, I, I mentioned this before, uh, on the MI5 website, our security services, but they have a, a big uh, section on the threat of subversion. They show a photo they took of the head of the Communist Party in 1969. They thought the state was going to be undermined by communists. But my point is, 
Is it the case that disinformation about climate change is undermining our states and threatening our national security? I don't know, but all eyes need to be upon protecting the public and making sure that we have an honest and transparent legal and public system to protect uh, the people of today and the children of tomorrow. Well, on that note, we might have to um, move on to introduce our guest today. An expert, someone like Tara, who knows what they're talking about, which I can't claim to, but that's never stopped me. (laughs) And uh, we are delighted to bring our listeners an interview with James Thornton today. James is an environmental lawyer and writer. He is the founding CEO of Client Earth, which has been uh, called by the International Bar Association, and I quote, a public interest law firm. It's very interesting that they call it a public interest law firm when James was very explicit uh, when he founded Client Earth to uh, found it as a global nonprofit environmental law organization. But it's interesting that it is perceived by his peers as a law firm, I think probably because of the impact that they have been having. Mm. Um, Now, Client Earth uh, has offices in London, Brussels, Warsaw, New York, and Beijing. They operate globally uh, and they use advocacy, litigation, and research to address many issues, actually, the greatest challenges, including biodiversity loss, toxic chemicals, and climate change. So let's move to the interview, which was actually recorded um, a few weeks ago, including Tom while he was still uh, with us. And in the interview, we invite James to focus on his work on climate change specifically, including his groundbreaking work in China. Great, let's hear it. James, thank you so much for joining us here on Outrage and Optimism. We we have been on the air for uh, over a year, and uh, all of a sudden we we looked at each other and we went, wait, 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 we haven't covered litigation at all, uh, which clearly was uh, a hole that we had to fill very quickly. And so, of course, you are the person that first came to mind on this because you have made such a remarkable name for yourself on, I would say, earth sciences or earth litigation in general and so many issues. But we wanted to today, if it's possible, and if you think it's fair, but you can also stray away from it, um, we wanted to focus on climate litigation just because that um, is the focus of the podcast. But we did want to start with something more personal because we think it's actually fascinating that uh, your passion really as a young person was biology. And you then had an aha moment, which we would love you to share with us. So how do you go from biology to law and then to setting up Client Earth in 2007? Well, first, let me say how pleased I am to be with you all. And uh, as I told you at uh, a lunch one time, uh, Christiana, you're you're one of my heroes. There aren't many heroes left, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you are one. And um, I, as a kid, uh, most environmentalists maybe would say uh, that as a child, they fell in love with nature. I mean, really fell in love with nature. It's a heart experience, you know, 
it's a mental experience, it's an emotional experience. So I had that, and then I wanted to be a biologist. One of my great early teachers was a woman uh, when I was a teenager who was uh, an entomologist at the Museum of Natural History in New York, and she was a great teacher for me. And uh, so, and then I went to university and I uh, studied lots of things, including uh, biology. And it was a natural thing to want to keep studying what I loved. Uh, and then it became clear that uh, it was beginning to suffer and potentially die. Uh, and I could spend the rest of my life studying what I loved and watching it die, or I could try to do something about it. Now, the reason uh, I then went to, became a lawyer, went to law school, was I didn't know what it would do because environmental law kind of was being born in those days. Uh, I went to law school in uh, 1976 and the big American environmental laws where I went to, I went to law school in America, uh, just come out around 1970. So it was very, very new. So I didn't know what I, how I was gonna use it, uh, but my father was a law professor and uh, there were four sons. Ooh. All oh. of the sons wound up becoming lawyers, even though some of them tried wow. other careers first. It was inevitable, sort of, you know. Was, was that <laughs> fed in the dinner table? That's a very good question. Uh, so what happened around the dinner table uh, was that our discussions, we were five years apart, you know, so I was number three. And around the dinner table, we would have discussions about topics, you know, uh, things that were going on in the world or what we had seen that day. And I didn't realize until many years later that my father was teaching us uh, the Socratic method and was teaching us to be lawyers because you would say something that you were passionate about as a kid and he would say, hmm, how do you know that that is true? Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> However, is that, was, the, is that with the main course or with dessert? <laughs> <laughs> it depended on the discussion. But happily, my mother was also there to support us completely. And from so for my father, I got this analytic uh, tradition. And for my mother, I got a deep spiritual uh, path. And uh, and those two have been my uh, nice, come together. nice pillars. Yeah. 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 Now, James, I wonder whether um, the two, let's say, uh, worldviews that you got from your two parents explain a phrase that is on the Client Earth website that we were all quite taken with, because you say Client Earth uses law as a tool to mend the relationship between human societies and the earth. And we would love to unpack that because mm -hmm. usually when, you know, people think of law or litigation, the last thing they think about is mending any relationship. In mm. fact, they think quite to the contrary. So we're just quite taken with that. And I'm wondering, does this have anything to do with, on the one hand, a spiritual practice and on the other hand, law from your father? Well, I'm sure it does. Uh, so the uh, way we use law, uh, and we'll talk about litigation today, but about half of what we do is litigation. And the other half of what we do is writing laws. So in parliaments, you know, uh, so we, uh, we work with uh, citizen groups, we work with legislators, we work uh, with companies when possible uh, to create new and better legal systems. So I have this idea that um, if we create environmental law 2.0, we're at 1.0 now, uh, and even if you enforce it, uh, the Paris Agreement that we all love and that you worked on so hard and everything else, that doesn't completely solve our problems. That's environmental law 1.0. If we create a perfect uh, environmental law uh, by environmental 2.0, then people will have the right set of rules and they will have agreed to the right set of rules to live well on the planet and live in a 
way that creates a resilient society and a sustainable society. So uh, there is, um, in law, you could say, uh, law captures the vision of whatever the people in a country think about themselves at the time. So at the it, time, at the time, it's a postcard in, in a way of where a, a people is with respect to their relationship in this case with the earth and it can change over time. So our idea is that if we move law in the right direction and then hold people to the law so that everyone behaves, uh, then indeed, if you have the right vision and you're moving it in the right direction, uh, then you can heal that relationship. Hmm. That's, that's, I love that, that you work on both of those elements and that, you know, both the constructing of the new laws as well as the implementing of the laws mm. that we should be adhering to. Can you, how far along on that road are we? How close are we to having the laws that we would need in the, for, the, for this conversation to solve the climate crisis? How much more, more new law writing do we need and how much do we just need to implement what's there? Well, you need both. I mean, so for example, going back to the Paris Agreement, Paris Agreement is very beautiful. Uh, and it hasn't yet fully cascaded uh, down into national laws. So it hasn't yeah. fully cascaded into the laws of every country. Uh, that needs to happen. Uh, and uh, those laws in every country need to also then apply to every sizable company uh, in the country so that every, every company needs to have a Paris-compliant business plan. Uh, and then that needs to be enforceable. So uh, there's a lot of cascading that hasn't happened yet. So there's a lot of law that hasn't come about. Mm. Uh, so the Paris Agreement is hard to enforce right now. In fact, it is occasionally enforceable in court, which is incredibly important. But a lot needs, a lot of detail needs to come under it, uh, as well as enforcing existing laws. That That's a complex and long process. Do you have any sense, James, an overview of, you know, if, if that process to its point of completion, if there is such a thing, um, is 100%. Are we at 10? Are we at 20? Globally, 10, 20, 30? What, where, where, where are we? Can you more or less quantify, guesstimate? Uh, you know, I've never thought about that. It's, that's a really great question. Um, maybe let's put it at 20% uh, with intentions to get up oh, to, wow. uh, but 20% is pretty good in the few years. But the intentions and the things that are being worked on now would move you uh, all the way, all the way up. So, uh, for example, uh, to take Europe and China as examples, because they are leaders at the moment, and I hope we get leadership out of the United States in a few months. Uh, but Europe and China now are, are leaders uh, on this, and Europe is looking at uh, its Green Deal, uh, and the Green Deal that's contemplated in Europe is uh, is a miracle, really, that it's uh, the, that is being thought of, uh, and it would and is being adhered to as the legislative agenda of the commission, even after COVID. But uh, that would uh, fundamentally bring every uh, area of uh, legislation within the EU uh, into line with Paris Agreement targets. So mm. that's remarkable. Uh, in China, I mean, we're working uh, with the Chinese government uh, on greening its Belt and Road Initiative. So the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is um, a vast infrastructure project uh, that would link 100 countries roughly to China, uh, well more than a trillion in investment, and it's roads, ports, uh, energy projects. And whether those are done green or brown uh, has a lot to do with whether we reach uh, Paris targets or not. You know? and, uh, yeah. <clears throat> and there was no framework uh, for deciding between green and brown investments in built and road decisions. We and many others have been working with uh, the Ministry of Environment and very excitingly, 
there is now a framework uh, that the Ministry of Environment in China uh, has, uh, and it's uh, a traffic light system where every Belt and Road project would get a green light, yellow light, or red light, uh, and therefore be easier or more difficult to fund. Um, and it's uh, according to what. According to what, what uh, uh, what's sorry. the traffic uh, uh, system? The, the, well, it, it, good question. So it, uh, what you're looking at then is climate impact and biodiversity impact. Wow. Mm. Amazing, right? No, this is beautiful. Uh, this wow. is a beautiful James, thing. Yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, this is totally cool. And so if, if you then were a company proposing to build a, you know, a solar power system in Indonesia under the Belt and Road, you'd get a green light. If you were proposing to build a coal-fired power station in Indonesia, you'd get a red light. Uh, now that wouldn't, under the current, we were saying that then everything that's red lighted or some of the things like coal would just be on a no-go list. I don't know if we'll win that argument, but at least it would be easier or more difficult uh, to finance. Now, as you'll know, uh, in no country is the Ministry of Environment the strongest ministry. Hmm. However, uh, the president of China- By she, far. <laughs> yes, uh, if we could switch a button uh, from one to the other, that would be <laughs> ideal. Anyway, uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, uh, has given a number of speeches recently saying we must green the Belt and Road Initiative. So the Ministry of Environment is now working with us and many foreign uh, advisors and a vast number of uh, Chinese intellectuals to perfect this uh, traffic light system. And the hope is then then uh, because Xi Jinping is so interested in it, that other ministries will will get on board, and I'm pretty sure that will happen. So at that point, what you begin to get, to go back to your question, is Europe with this uh, beautiful idea of a Green Deal, uh, aligning um, all of its legislation with achieving Paris Agreement targets, and uh, China greening the Belt and Road, in which case, if this works, as I hope it does, then you get a trillion of investment in green infrastructure rather than brown infrastructure, and you begin to move uh, global society much, much more quickly towards uh, towards Paris. Mm. So, so can I ask a question, uh, James, so just about uh, Europe uh, particularly, because mm. what I found fascinating is is the way you're talking about like working with the government, it sounds like it's not mm. like a party political thing. I mean, does, does Client Earth like try and work with the green parliamentarians or how do you integrate with the party process to get laws passed? And I, I mentioned that just because we've got thousands of people listening who are very effective climate activists. Yeah. What's the secret of your interaction? Well, uh, you know, anyone is my friend uh, who wants to improve the climate. <laughs> A hundred percent. So uh, I work, we work uh, with uh, Green Party. We work with, uh, we work with conservatives uh, in, in every country, you know. Wow, uh, that's and, good. And, and many people would say, why are you working in China at all? Because uh, someone might say, I'm not a fan of their human rights policies. How can you work in China? Uh, and the answer is because they are deeply and honestly seeking to do good things for the environment. So on that, they're my friends. I, I wanted to take you, Paul, if I may, I, I wanted to take you back a little bit to China because it's so fascinating. Um, the, the fact that they have now a traffic-like system for Belt and Road is an incredible achievement, James. It's something, you know, that many activists have been tearing their hair out um, about. And so that's excellent news. But I am sure that this was did not come lightly. I would love to hear a little more about the process, the work, with whom, is it with the legislative system, is it with the um, legal system, is it with the justice system, is it, you know, is it 
city level, state level, national, just just a little, I'm, I'm sorry that we don't have the time to get into all of the specifics, but if you can give us a flavor, because that work of Client Earth in basically the one country that holds in their hand um, the capacity to truly design and define the future is just fantastic. It's amazing. Well, yeah. And um, uh, the way it started was uh, I was invited in in 2014 uh, to advise members of the Supreme Court uh, and uh, senior lawmakers on a law that they were working on. And they were writing a law to allow Chinese NGOs to sue polluting companies, including companies that were owned, that are owned by the state. Uh, now, amazing, right? That's mm. pretty amazing. cool. That, that's 2014. So I arrive in you know, Beijing and they've asked me to give them a seminar and they say, look, you're the only guy we know who's done this type of work, uh, NGO work uh, against companies uh, in both Europe and the United States. You know, So what should a system look like that's gonna deliver this? And I said, well, before we get there, I just wanna say how great this change that you're, uh, you're making is. Uh, you know, I think it's revolutionary. Uh, and the senior Supreme Court judge said, James, revolutionary is a big word for us. <laughs> and we had a good laugh. And I said, I could love these people and work with them. And that's exactly what happened. So I gave them advice. They, I went back in a few months and they said, well, um, all of your advice on, uh, was so valuable. We wrote it directly into the Chinese law. And I said, in the Supreme Court, I'm in the, in the Supreme Court across the table from judge, the judges. And I put my hand in my heart and said, your honor, not every meeting begins like this for me. This is pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and the Supreme Court judge said, okay, uh, what, what do you want to do next for China? Wow. Which, what a wonderful question, right? And, what, a, uh, what an honor for you to be asked that question. Indeed. I mean, biggest honor ever at that point in my, in my life. For sure, absolutely. Uh, I, I thought, you know, what have I done to get here? Uh, and the um, and I said, well, look, you've just created three thousand environment court judges, way ahead of any other country in the world. So it it had appointed three thousand judges to only decide environmental cases. Quite amazing. And I said, but they need training. And the Supreme Court judge said, uh, you couldn't be more right. Uh, uh, will you train, train them? them? <laughs> will you train them? And I had to say yes, right? Having never trained a judge. And that led to this wonderful uh, uh, relationship uh, in which the man who was the head of the EU-China environment program uh, mm. became the head of our office there. Uh, and uh, we brought in experts from around the world to train the judges uh, from all over the planet. And uh, that's been going on for years. Uh, shortly after that, the uh, prosecutors in China came to us and they said, in that law you helped write, we got the right to sue the Chinese government on behalf of the people. Uh, and you sue governments all over the place all the time and you always seem to win. We've never sued the government. Could you train us to sue <laughs> the Chinese? We never dared to sue the government. <laughs> well, well, they never had the right, you know? So uh, Yeah, they were never yeah. allowed, exactly. Well, and suddenly they were. So mm. they said, uh, will you train us to sue the government on behalf of the people over the environment? And that was the next most amazing question I've ever had in my life. So we brought in prosecutors from around the world. Uh, oh, but hold it, hold it, James. Well, you, I think you stepped over something. You're being asked, will you train us to sue the government? Now, yeah. do you not, in China, do you not then have to go to the government to ask permission to deliver that training? Oh, well, the government's in the room. I mean, these are the federal prosecutors. 
you know. Okay. Yeah. Oh no, these are the federal prosecutors. It was the number. I think it was the number two man in the federal prosecutor service uh, coming to us uh, for the whole country, saying, you know, this would be very valuable. Would you share training? So then we brought in prosecutors from around the world, and uh, they trained uh, uh, these uh, the Chinese judges. And then uh, the amazing thing was uh, a couple of years later we went to the prosecutors and we we're training and training, you know, uh, and said, how's it going? And uh, two years of full-time work and they had brought over a hundred thousand cases. Oh uh, my God. Uh, wow. Amazing. Wow. And then we, then the big question was how many against government entities, you know, and this yes. would be like a uh, prosecutor takes the Ministry of Environment in Yunnan uh, to court for not enforcing the air quality law or the water quality law, something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and the answer was 70%. So that's like 70,000. Yeah. Again, this, wow. Yeah. No, it's, so the rapidity with which they're trying to improve environmental performance is unlike anything else uh, in the world. I come back so jazzed by uh, by working with these people. Uh, and then, uh, so we developed a, a relationship there with the, a memorandum of understanding with the Supreme Court, with the prosecutors, uh, with the Ministry of Environment. And then when the Ministry of Environment started thinking about, you know, what about the uh, Belt and Road and the Green Investment Fund, the head of the Green Investment Fund started thinking, how can we green investment in the Belt and Road? And we became part of this pool of uh, advisors. Uh, and uh, they hired uh, a uh, the former head of the United Nations Environment Program, Eric Salzheim, uh, to be the foreign lead uh, in designing this uh, traffic light system. Hmm. So, so uh, an observation I would make is, is yeah. that the uh, government of China is, is, you know, m- many of them are kind of, Technocratic experts, actually, yes. and uh, and they recognise that they have a kind of enforcement problem. That, that that their industry is so big and so fast, and in some ways, in its its modern configuration, so new um, that they that they they really do want and need all the help they can get. I remember some years ago, I saw the chief executive of Walmart with the environment minister of China shaking hands, saying that the Walmart, through its purchasing, would be trying to enforce environmental standards. So. Jump back to the you know the EU, the US, Latin America, where most of our listeners are in Africa or so. Mm. Um, w- w- you know what? How do you see uh, litigation working? How can we use law? How can we be empowered? I mean, I know you know I have tremendous respect for for client Earth and what you've been doing for a long time. But have you got a couple of examples of 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 of, of the kind of victories that that you know anyone in a sense could achieve in any country if they mm-hmm. were focused? Mm. Well, sure, I can give you some. And uh, and what's interesting for us is as, we, um, as we've been doing this in country after country, we, uh, uh, NGOs around the world uh, are saying, can you come and help us? And so my, my uh, great interest uh, now and over the coming years is to form partnerships uh, uh, and uh, build capacity in countries everywhere uh, so that uh, people can do this. So for example, um, uh, we're, we've been working throughout Europe and then in China and in five African countries. And then um, my ambition for us is to work throughout Southeast Asia to prevent a new generation of coal-fired power stations because there are something like 420 on the books that are planned uh, and working with uh, local NGOs, local people, local partners. Uh, and and if, I'm, if I'm in a country and there's a coal-fired power station about to be built, what's the kind of, what are the top three things that you can do? Not so much that people are going to do it based on what you say, but just to give a taste so people mm. can understand. 
Well, I mean, it, it depends. Uh, but the uh, uh, so in a, in a sense, the basic one is uh, is a lawsuit against the uh, the power plant. It depends on your legal system. But in Poland, for example, uh, uh, when I was starting up Client Earth, there were thirty six uh, coal fired power stations that were planned to be built in Poland, um, and uh, the Polish government didn't, wasn't interested in listening to reason. So. Um, we uh, set up an office and the first thing the office did, there were 14 that were just about to be started. And we sued each of those investments. <laughs> Who did you sue? The investors? Who uh, did in you those, sue? Yes, in those cases, it was the investors. So, uh, because uh, these were uh, companies building a plant and you sue the investor. And in those early cases, and this is a typical example, uh, it would be because their environmental uh, impact assessment was done poorly or because uh, they were harming nature in a way that was uh, clearly illegal and you could take them to court and you could slow it down by years and sometimes just win outright. Uh, and a billion euro investment slowed down for years uh, looks like a worse investment. So hmm. uh, our idea was to slow it down to the point where reason would intervene, uh, renewable energy would get cheaper, uh, and then the coal plants wouldn't be built. And that's what's happened. Not one of these coal plants has been built. And the most recent example uh, in Poland is, is really cool because um, it was against a company called Enea, Enea, a big energy company. And the Polish government owns a slight majority and they wanted to build what they were calling the last new coal-fired power station in Europe, which I took as kind of a backhanded compliment to our, to our work. <laughs> uh, so the last coal-fired power station in Europe, our usual tactic wasn't going to work, but for the last five years, we've built up a, uh, a company uh, and finance project to stop climate change. So we have a, a group of 12, I think now, lawyers who are using uh, uh, securities law, company law, uh, pensions law, insurance law and so on to and banking to try and stop climate change by attacking money flows. And this then is a case about money. So it's not even an environmental case. So mm. what we did is we bought shares, uh, we commissioned a carbon tracker, which is a, a fantastic partner yeah. organization. We commissioned an independent economic study, which said that this was a losing proposition financially because of energy markets in Europe. Uh, building coal is not what the market wanted. The market wanted renewable energy. Uh, hmm. So you weren't going to make money off this plant. So we said, great. We showed it to the company. Company said, owned by the government, uh, we're going to do it anyway. So we said, see you in court. And then having bought shares, uh, this is the first time in the world anyone had done this. Uh, we sued the officers and directors of the company personally saying they were violating their duty to us as shareholders. Uh, isn't that lovely? Because it's they were great. making a really bad investment yeah. by investing in coal. They're violating their fiduciary duty. Precisely so. This is mm. the first fiduciary duty uh, case of its kind. And we've been discussing fiduciary duty with companies for years, but this is our first uh, case where we're saying, you're violating your fiduciary duty to us. Essentially what we're arguing is, you're going to ruin our 30 euro investment by building this coal-fired power station. <laughs> I can't resist. Sorry, I've got to talk about this uh, fiduciary duty. It's incredibly important because, um, you know, 
we think that these great faceless corporations, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. But actually, it turns out that the directors and officers of those corporations have legal obligations to act in the best interest of the owners and seeing as right. you know, literally hundreds of thousands, millions of us as shareholders in those companies, um, they've got a, a duty to us. So uh, absolute congratulations to you uh, there, James. You nailed them. Brilliant. So, uh, so by buying a few shares, we became owners of the company. Uh, and then they owed us a duty to act prudently. Uh, at, with the investment of the company. And we could prove that a coal plant was not a prudent investment. So we sued them and we just didn't sue the company. We sued the officers and directors personally. personally uh, oh, wow. Wh- which is the biggest fear of any officer mm. or yeah, director. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. absolutely. Piercing the corporate and, veil. And? And, and what is the res- and? And. So, and Don't we, leave we, us hanging on the chair. <laughs> okay, that's all we've got time for. Come back next week, listeners, for the completion of this serum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we hired we hired the best securities lawyer in Poland. He, uh, he took it to court for us, and we won. And Yay! Wow. <laughs> wow. And then here's the punchline: the next day, the share price went up four percent. Up four percent. Because the investors knew what you the, were saying was true. Right. The market agreed with us, and yeah. that's the wonderful. Agreed. Uh, and that's so the biggest change for me since I was doing this when I was, you know, in my twenties was that people, which is a long time ago now, I would stand up and people would say, you know, you're a very, uh, you know, uh, ethically correct sort of young fellow. And these are good arguments you're making about saving nature and everything, but it'll never work because it's not economic. Now, economics is on our side. And I'm sure you've explored that in your show. I know you have. I've heard you do it. And this is a great example of that, you know, so, uh, and the Polish business newspapers, uh, which are quite conservative, didn't treat it as the environmentalists are suing to stop coal. Not at all, uh, even though we're well known there and we were denounced earlier uh, in our early years. Instead, the right-wing business newspaper said, investors question investment in coal. Uh, <laughs> uh, again and again, it was just investors say- The business coal, case. The business yes. case. Okay, James, so <laughs> I've got to ask you, what about the Adani coal mine in Australia? Yeah. Uh, we had uh, Lisa Neubauer on the podcast a while ago talking about her efforts yes. uh, to try and stop that. Any thoughts on that, James? Oh, I mean, lots of thoughts. I mean, it's if you had to pick one thing in the, wor- uh, in the world that's worst that's going on right now, other than mm. the presidency of Donald Trump, it would be the, <laughs> you know, it would be the Adani coal mine, right? <clears throat> Are you involved? Are you going to get involved? Uh, we've been giving some advice to some groups. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and I, I wish there was a, a beautiful, clear path uh, through litigation. There have been a number of good cases brought by uh, the, uh, by, uh, the uh, environmental defenders in Australia. Uh, there's, mm. there's been some good work done and, you know, it's, it's not easy to win. I'm, I'm just hoping that uh, Gautama Adani wakes up one morning and realizes that this is really bad karma. You know, yeah. uh, or the financiers or anyone else involved, right? Well, yeah. the, prob- well, yeah. well the problem is- Didn't uh, Adani, it, it, James, didn't Adani just sign the largest ever solar contract in India? Uh, I mean, you know, so he, he, somehow he must be looking at his left hand and his right hand mm. and saying, what, which is the future and which is the past? But the yes. biggest solar contract ever- um, and I would have to look it up, but my memory says eight billion. Does that s- no eight gigawatts? Eight gigawatts. Eight gigawatts. Is that, well, does a- that sound? Uh, does that sound correct to you all? 
Uh, I'm going to look it up while you speak. Oh, that would be great. I mean, that's uh, that's a beautiful thing. I, I didn't know it. I knew that there was a lot of investment in India. I didn't realize that Donnie had done that. That's great. Mm. So uh, maybe enlightenment is possible. Uh, so far, uh, he seems <clears throat> to be very involved personally. Very resistant. And, yeah. You know, and uh, and has, inve- uh, has said that he'll finance it himself. Banks have been pulling out because banks realize exactly. it's, a very, it's a bad idea. You know, so yeah. the economic case has caused banks to pull out. So... Uh, Clearly, he'll lose his shirt, you know. So I just looked it up. It is, in fact, the largest solar contract ever. It goes to Adani, uh, disguised as the Solar Energy Corporation of India, but it's an Adani firm. Uh, Eight eight gigawatts, hold on, eight gigawatts of projects, transaction valued Hmm. at $6 billion. Just astonishing. So the, uh, the Adani system is the most contradictory company in human history. Is that what you're saying, Christiana? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, let's give them- uh, That's uh, a uh, pretty big crowd. I think there's some other- (laughs) 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 But if we can uh, leave Mr. Adani, if he's listening today with with a good idea, which is that, um, you know, if you switch from, so imagine Australia, and if you switch from coal uh, to building lots of solar in Australia, uh, you could create the, hydrogen economy of the world. Mm. Uh, Instead of shipping coal, you can ship hydrogen uh, and you become the Saudi Arabia of the new world. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it, exactly. It yeah. would be very beautiful, and yeah. it's it's a no brainer if you start thinking about it. You know, it's just an addiction to old forms of thinking that's stopping yeah. that. Yeah, um, absolutely. James, th- this is so wonderful to talk to you. We love we we love love Client Earth for a long time. It's so great to to hear all the all the amazing ways you've intervened in the system. We normally ask our guests who come on this podcast at the end whether they feel more outraged or optimistic, but you hmm. sort of exude optimism. So I kind of, I'm almost going to assume that you're optimistic and you can answer that question if you like. But I'd particularly like to hear, what are you most excited about now? You sort of exist at the forefront of all of these cutting edge strategies to transform the world. What are you seeing that's kind of making you feel excited about the future? Well, I mean, it's that, uh, well, it's, I would say three things uh, immediately come to mind. Uh, one is that economics is on on. Uh, the green side now, yeah, uh, yep, and uh, and uh, and that includes that. And there's a second wave of Corona uh, stimulus coming, uh, which is going to be in the trillions. Uh, and uh, there was a wonderful study from Oxford uh, Smith School a few weeks ago, uh, looking at uh, economists around the world, and there was universal agreement that investment in green infrastructure and uh, green everything is the best for the economy in in this yeah. second wave of investment. So. Yep. The, that's beautiful. The economics are on our side. Uh, and then the kids are demanding it. You know? right. uh, yes, yes. It's, it's very exciting to me, you know, that this tremendous, tremendous energy is there. And then third, uh, you know, what we might never have imagined a few years ago uh, is that uh, China is working like mad to become uh, environmentally clean, responsible. Uh, and it is such good news. It's, it's such wow. great news. Yeah. And, and, so that China is and that Europe is. Uh, you know, I was talking to the former environment commissioner in Europe uh, a few weeks ago, and he was using that phrase I was using earlier, that this green deal in Europe uh, is, uh, is, uh, is a miracle. And, uh, and it really is. Uh, and we're working to connect the uh, common agricultural policy, which is 60 billion a year subsidy, uh, with the green deal. And the EU has now said it will do that. So you have 
over the next 10 years, the Green Deal is, again, well more than a trillion. The Belt and Road Initiative is well more than a trillion uh, in investment. And you have these two blocks that are interested in the uh, in the environment. The, the big sweet spot in the world politically right now is the agreement uh, between the EU and China that taking care of the environment is the right thing to do. Yeah. So I find that enormously exciting, you know, and I want to stand in that spot and help them both, you know. Um, yeah. Love it. Amazing. James, thank you so much. This has been a very uplifting and inspiring conversation. We so appreciate the work you do. I actually tweeted a few months ago. That it was, I think there was something on Bioluiesa a while ago. You won some yes. victory. And I tweeted, I am grateful to live in a world that has client earth in it. And I, and I really do feel that your work is amazing. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. Well, and I'm I'm yeah. sad that our time is up, actually, James, because we had a whole list of other questions <laughs> that we wanted to ask oh, you. Oh, well, but for for <laughs> listeners, I I would just suggest that they also look up um, the NGO Positive Futures. Yes, which is uh, such an interesting contribution to um, the grief and the frustration and the pain that is out there around so many of these issues and really helping activists to lift up, uh, to face that, but also lift up out of it. But, you know, I, so many other things. So, so I, I actually think, James, you have to promise to come back There's on. Part two. There's got to be a part two, yeah. <laughs> any, any day of the week, you know. <laughs> Thank you very much, James, for giving our listeners some of the kind of tools to finish the job because um, destruction of the world through unmitigated climate change is, I am sure, against the regulations. <laughs> so, um, you know, I really salute you finding ways to make sure we can kind of interpret those regulations to make ourselves safe again. Thank you. Thank you, James. Uh, wonderful. And All see you again. Uh, yep. see, see you, you soon. Bye. See you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, what a fascinating interview uh, with James, um, Tara, and Paul. What what do you make of that? What what are you left with? I love his. I love the early part. I always love a personal story, don't you? I love the. Um, if I want to protect nature, I need to not indulge myself in studying it and learning about it, but rather learn how to defend it and use the law as the force that will help me to do mm. that. I think mm. that's really powerful that that sometimes um sometimes the path to our passion isn't the most direct one um, or the most powerful or influential one. Um, so I, I think that's a really strong message for anyone listening who's trying to figure out what their next career move is or what to study in university. Not that you have to go and study law, but that there are many, many paths to achieving your goal um, and being open to those and trying some different things can be really powerful. So that's one thing that really stuck with me. Hmm. Now, I think that's a brilliant observation that, um, you know, in, in a way, it's, it's, it's a whole story of kind of almost like aspects of the, so to say, environmental movement that, yes, you know, you do want to go off and try and, and kind of fix these problems, but actually going back up, back up, what's the root of the problem and what's the root resolution? Um, one thing I particularly took from it um, was the notion of of uh, individuals being sued personally, and um, I, you know I do not you know I do not think that 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 you know nice good hearted people you know who who are just doing their their normal jobs you know should should suffer uh, you know. Uh, 
personal prosecution, but there are circumstances where people do not think through with enough clarity and with enough sense of personal responsibility the impacts of, of the decisions they're taking. I can quite imagine some people would be saying, oh, you know, what's the position of the government here? Or, you know, how can we influence them because we want to make sure that our company, you know, stop. It might be that without realizing it, you're starting to use significant financial resources to kind of subvert the actions of the government to protect people. And frankly, if you're doing that and you're not thinking about it, then it's good that you have the threat personally, that you do think mm. about whether you as a director and officer are actually covered under your insurance. People have to start thinking as individuals again with that human responsibility that we all have to each other and stop acting like agents of organizations that may actually, uh, because you know they're involved in massive fossil fuel emissions, may actually be, be acting against the interests of people. That's got to stop. Yeah, and I loved in that way how James marries environmental law with human rights law, with kind of investor risk assessment, and then all this fiduciary responsibility mm. that, that boards and companies and, and, and shareholders hold. And when you think about that, the power of pulling those different elements of law together, I found that really fascinating. And the other thing that I think that was a comfort for me to hear him say, and for many of us who wonder, you know, sometimes are we... Uh, is there any merit in working from the inside out with companies that are, for example, fossil fuel companies, um, you know, those that we might fear will never change? He said, anyone who wants to protect the climate is someone I will work for, someone that will be my friend. Mm. Um, and I thought that must be reassuring to so many and so many of our listeners and those who might be working hard as a uh, you know, the lone voice of sustainability or climate change within their company or organization to say that does matter. If if there's a window for you to create change, even if your company is not in the cleanest industry, um, keep at it. You know, this is this is a powerful, you are in a powerful place and you are not in an unethical place. I hope that's comforting for lots of our listeners too. You know, what I thought was just hugely surprising about what he shared with us is his work in China mm -hmm. um, to train the, you know, lawyers there and the legal system there to bring uh, litigation against the government. I mean, I, I just, I literally fell off my chair. I cannot <laughs> believe that that is happening because that is the start of something potentially incredibly Powerful. If you compare it to what happened in the Netherlands, for example, just over the past few months, where the famous Urgenda case sort of went up to higher and higher courts and finally to the Dutch Supreme Court, which in December of last year made its final decision ordering the Dutch government to cut its emissions by 25% by the end of 2020, like now. So they gave them 12 months to cut their emissions by 25% in order to protect citizens. Well, that is an astonishing decision. And the fact that James and his colleagues are training a cadre of lawyers in China to be very aware of how to protect citizens in China is just astonishing to me. Are, are, are you not also bowled over by that? It's so progressive. I think it's massively, massively progressive. And I think, you know, so often I find myself 
um, defending China. And here I am. Here's another good reason to defend China. This is, <laughs> this is inspired. You know, they are leading, what leadership to say that we're open to uh, bringing scrutiny onto ourselves. And when James spoke about, you know, the power then of that traffic light system that they're creating as a result, will help, which will help to ensure that the maximum amount of the, the, the trillion dollar investment they're going to make in um, in infrastructural projects is going to be green and not brown. Um, like the power of that, like when we change how money is made and spent, we change everything. And mm. so if we can use law and policy to make sure that that trillion dollars in in China is spent in a green and sustainable way, along with what he called the miracle of the EU Green Deal and making sure that that another trillion euros in this case is also going to be spent in a way that's compatible with a sustainable future. Um, I mean, that's amazing. And to think that he's played a, a part and had a hand in both of those um, for such a modest, humble person. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I was blown away, completely blown away. But it, it's the power of it is really incredible. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, there will be some listeners, uh, maybe in the United States, who say something like China's a little bit, uh, there's a complicated situation going on there. It is a one-party system. But I'll tell you a little story. Um, the United States is not quite where it should be. Uh, even under the previous president, um, the Secretary of State John Kerry gave a talk at, at an event. I saw him and he said he had a bill through the Senate to put a, get a carbon tax back to actually by the oil and gas companies. But he said it didn't go through because coal went on TV and scared Americans. That's a verbatim quote. And that isn't happening, uh, I don't think, in China. So we've got a contest now for political systems, and I hope that it will bring out the best of people. But I loved in that And the uh, best in decision. both systems, right, Paul? And I the mean, best could, in both systems. Yeah, it's not a competition between the systems. It's a, the best in both systems. But, I mean, I'm just going to give a little shout out to um, the Dutch Supreme Court, uh, you know, who are just so cool. Um, they they rejected all the state's arguments. Apparently, the state had said that they were Netherlands is only small; it's only 0.4 percent of global emissions, and therefore the impact of tightening emissions reductions policies would be just a drop in the ocean. That's what the Dutch government said. It's just a drop. We in the had ocean. that exact same and, uh, line. The, the Dutch Supreme Court instead determined that a country cannot escape its own share of responsibility to take measures by arguing that compared to the rest of the world. I love it. I just can't, you know, Supreme Court judges, you are, you rock, you rock the world. They're doing the same thing, in, uh, Paul, here in Ireland at the moment with our Climate Case Ireland, where again, this old, old line that I thought that was long dead, oh, but your Ireland's emissions are too small to matter on the global stage. Why are you taking us to court over this? And it's the same thing. Yeah, but no, per capita, we're really really significant uh, emitters and we're all in this together this is a global effort so whether you're ireland or the netherlands or china you know everybody has a part to play and and that line just doesn't as the supreme court judge said that line just doesn't rock it anymore <laughs> <laughs> the oceans are made of drops you can look at it that way around um clay is it time for us to close yes sadly okay. that flew yeah. Tara, well, thank you so much. Um, well, we've been just calling you Tara because you're such a good friend, but it is actually Dr. Tara Shine. Mm. So thank you very much uh, for <laughs> joining us and for sharing uh, from your experience with us. It's been quite delightful 
to be back in touch with you because COVID has sort of separated us and I haven't seen you in a long time. So it's been delightful on a personal level. And thank you very much for the insights that you've shared with our listeners today. Well, thank you for having me on, Christiana and Paul. I have enjoyed myself immensely and continue with this great podcast. I love listening to it. Uh, last listened to it, painting my daughter's bedroom. It kept me going when I was losing the will to live. So yeah. <laughs> what color? What color did you paint it? Blue dragon fly wing, apparently. That's what it's called. Somehow I knew it wouldn't be white. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Far too dull. Far too dull. <laughs> Dr. Tara Shine, thank you so much for spending some time with us this week. And uh, it, it falls to me to um, say a little bit about our uh, closing song today from Mystery Jets. But actually, it's really a story song. And I'm going to make a plug for our previous episode. Uh, it is... Is has always been my ambition to be a performer in an ultra cool band. And of course, Christiana has got there first. But just to remind you, Christiana is lead vocalist on Massive Attack's EP, <laughs> Utopia. We played a clip last week. Please listen to it. It's absolutely devastating. And I just want to notice that the piece covers three themes, climate change, tax avoidance, and universal basic income. And I think these are the three biggest themes of the 21st century. Climate change is survival for humans. Tax avoidance is how to fund the redistribution of wealth. And universal basic income, I personally believe, will deliver happiness and the great dividend to humanity that's due from automation and computerization. So I just want to salute the perfect, in my view, political vision of Massive Attack. Do listen to the great EP Utopia and look forward to seeing you next week. And next week... We will be joined by Tom again. Tom, hopefully. Tom who? Tom. Yeah, who? Which Tom was? Uh, is that? he a mystery I'm... guest? Well, maybe if Tom <laughs> decides to come back to the real world, we will have him back on the episode next week. So we look forward to that. And now we have a wonderful song from Mystery Jets called "Wrong Side of the Tracks." That is uh, a, a fascinating song with a story. So let's listen to that now. There's a world outside your window and it needs your sun Lunatics are reading Bibles and are buying guns No matter what they say, no matter what you've done Their words ain't worth the paper that they printed on Don't let them tie you down, lie and say you're sick They put you on the pill but what you got cannot be fixed Never forget like the other kids All we ever wanted was to make the needle skip Tonight no one can stop them Only me and you Tonight no one can stop us Nothing they can do Tonight no one can stop them Only me and you Tonight So
outside your window what you running from heretics suppressing buttons dropping distant bombs never forget we're not like the other ones all we ever wanted was to make the needle jump tonight no one can stop them only me and you tonight no one can stop us nothing there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The song you just heard is a special acoustic version of Wrong Side of the Tracks by Mystery Jets. You can go listen to the album version of this song as well as the rest of the new album, A Billion Heartbeats, wherever you get your music. Okay, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilia-German. Thanks to the team, Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, and Sharon Johnson. Our co-hosts are Paul Dickinson, Tom Rivet-Karnak, and Christiana Figueres. Special thanks this week to Anais Rivalier and Sebastian Ribar for their work making our interview with James Thornton possible. And thank you to our musical guest, Mystery Jets. Thanks to Adam Maestro of SoFar Sounds. We're proud to be partnering with SoFar Sounds to bring you special performances of music surrounding the climate crisis on the podcast. Right now, SoFar Sounds is raising $250,000 for SoFar artists whose livelihoods have been affected by COVID-19. 100% of the proceeds go directly to the artists. So you can check out amazing live performances and support musicians right now by going to SoFarSounds.com link in the show notes. Thank you to our guest co-host this week, Dr. Tara Shine. Her book, How to Save Your Planet One Object at a Time, is available right now to purchase and read. I've put a link in the show notes so you can purchase the book, read it, and save your planet. And a thank you to the guest of our interview this week, James Thornton. You can sleep better at night if you check out the amazing work Client Earth is doing by visiting clientearth.org link in the show notes. Do I need to keep saying that? Link in the show notes. 
Feels good to say it. Link in the show notes. <laughs> okay, go check out Client Earth. And why limit your internet experience when you can join us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism? If you love the podcast, and we know you do, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating. Actually, take a screenshot of your review and tweet it at us. <laughs> I'll be looking for those. Next week, Tom will be back and balance will be restored to the universe. Tom is probably listening to this right now. Hi, Tom. See you back here next week.